Uh, I asked Jerry to pray in the back, and he kind of mentioned all that. He said, okay, we're missing this, we're missing that, we're missing this, but we still have the Spirit of God, and we are here to worship our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And we will make the pastor and the piano player look really good. So I'd like to welcome you, and I hope your Thanksgiving was nice. Ours was nice because we did not have any turkey. We had chicken. It's like when you, when you only have two people, what are you going to do with an 18-pound bird? You're going to eat turkey through Easter. And, uh, I like chicken better. I like pizza too, but that just doesn't seem right. Some announcements here. You can look in the bulletin. We have a lot of things coming up uh, in Christmas. The Christmas Tea Ladies, take note of that. In see Isaac, if you're interested in the True Church Conference, we have scholarships for that. And I'm not sure if Ladies Bible Study is meeting tonight. I kind of suspect that it will not because Catherine is under the weather. And now let's go to the Advent candle reading with the Warrens, if, if you would do that. The word Advent is from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming. Uh, Advent season here at Grace Reformed Baptist marks a time in which we anticipate our celebration of the first Advent of Christ, which is celebrated in our culture as Christmas. Advent candles have been a part of the church for hundreds of years. The exact history of this tradition is not clear, but it appears that this practice was developed to encourage the church to think about the excellencies of Christ's first advent. The advent candle is used as an object lesson to remind the church about significant aspects of the first advent, the first coming of Christ. The hope of Christ. This candle we light reminds us of the hope that we have in Christ. And then Colossians 1, verse 26 mentions this mystery hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to the saints. You could read that God's doing something, there's a Messiah, there's a Savior coming, but it, I have no idea what, that God would be with us, and that he would save not just the Jews, but be the Savior of the entire world. And the same way we have a, a hope that will blow us away when he comes again. Uh, Colossians 1, 27, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Thank you, Paul and Patty. It's amazing how your mind works when Paul mentioned this mystery. I went back to the mid-70s when I was in high school at a Jesuit high school. And I was walking up the stairwell, and we had read about the mystery. And I asked one of the priests, I said, Father, what is this mystery that Paul is writing about? And he looked at me and said, it's a mystery. <laughs> and in my adolescent mind, I thought, you don't have a clue. Yeah. But thankfully, we have God's word. Revealed to us, the Spirit of God opens and illumines our mind. And praise God that he saves our souls so that we can be his children 
and we can understand what this mystery is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for another day of life to come with my brothers and sisters to worship you because you are worthy of all our worship. You're worthy of our very lives, and we devote to you just a few hours today to publicly sing your praises, to hear your word read and preached. I ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would help us to grow closer as a family of brothers and sisters around Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that in your love and your mercy and your grace and even your forbearance that you sent your son to die, to be a propitiation, and to bring us into your kingdom. You are an incredible God, and we love you. We ask that you would watch over our pastor and his wife, that you would heal their bodies, and that you would heal other people that are sick, protect those who are traveling, and help us to worship you, even with these meager resources. We bring our hearts to you today. Amen. Our first scripture reading is the birth of Christ in Matthew. Chapter 1, starting in 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. So I'm going to let you stay seated as we sing this first song. Uh, we'll turn in our hymnals to 206, Silent Night, Silent Night, Holy Night. They found Mary, Joseph, and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger, Luke 2.16. Silent night, holy
second reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 2. Visit of the wise men. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who had been born of the king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For for from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly to ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Jerusalem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may to joy to the world. join them in a coalition against Assyria. So Ahaz was afraid of that. And as I've said, he was going to look to Assyria for help rather than to the Lord. Isaiah wanted him to trust in God. Judah was God's special country. Uh, Ahaz was in the direct line of David. He was the 11th king of Judah. And if he trusted in God, he could expect God's help. And so that's what Isaiah was trying to convince Ahaz to do. And that brings us to the setting here. Where Isaiah has said to Ahaz, trust God and you'll be delivered from the Syrians and Israel and Uh, Ahaz has a hard time with that. He has likely already decided that he's going to try to make an alliance with Assyria instead. So we come to verse 10 of Isaiah 14. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, 
Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as shale or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he, and he that is Isaiah, said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now there is one controversial word here in verse 14, and that is the word virgin. Uh, our ESV translations has the word virgin, as does the New King James, the King James, and almost all translations of the Bible, but not all of them. The RSV and the updated RSV, the new RSV, and the Catholic edition of the RSV all have young woman rather than virgin. And also the, the Net Bible and the second edition of the Net Bible used young woman. But all conservative translations, including the NIV, by the way, use virgin. The question is, which is right? And uh, the vast majority of translations, as I've said, use the word virgin. Uh, the word in Hebrew can, uh, yeah, can mean young woman or virgin. That what you have to do is figure it out from the context. And in this case, what Isaiah is saying to Ahaz is that I'm going to give you a sign. Well, the question would be then, would a young woman having, conceiving and having a baby be a particular sign? I, I think the answer to that has to be no. Uh, young women conceiving and having uh, children is something that happens all the time, everywhere, and it's been going on throughout all of history. And if that were not the case, there'd be no human beings. And so, saying that a young woman would have a child and that's going to be your sign is like saying your sign will be the, the grass will be green and the sky will be blue and water will be wet. In other words, it's uh, not anything out of the ordinary, which is what you'd expect from a sign. But a virgin conceiving and having a son, that's something really extraordinary. That's something you don't expect. That's something that uh, had not happened in the history of the world and up to that point and would only happen once. And, and so what the context, I think, demands is the translation of virgin. And in fact, uh, when the Septuagint was translated, from Hebrew into Greek, the, the Jewish scholars who came up with the Septuagint used the Greek word for virgin when they translated this section in Isaiah. And of course, Matthew, uh, which we just heard read to us in Matthew chapter 1, where Isaiah 714 is quoted, uh, also uses the Greek word for virgin. So I think that we can be uh, quite assured that virgin is the correct translation 
Uh, even if the liberal translators of the RSV uh, didn't recognize that. Okay, <clears throat> then if you will turn the page to chapter 9 of Isaiah. where we'll be reading from verses 1 to 7. Now the land of Zebulun and Naphtali uh, refers to northern Israel. That is the area that those tribes were allotted in the division of the land under Joshua. And as the northernmost part of Israel... They were most exposed to foreign influence and to foreign invasion. And so uh, in about 734 BC, again, this is about 25 years after the book of Jonah, uh, the events of Jonah took place, the Assyrians would in fact uh, attack Syria and Israel and in about two years, they would conquer Syria and Israel. Uh, this was not the destruction of Israel at the time. The Assyrians would appoint uh, a puppet king to be king of Judah, who would last until 722, uh, when after a three-year siege, Samaria was captured because the puppet king Hoshea had chosen to rebel against the Assyrians. And the help that he hoped for from Egypt was not good enough to prevent the Assyrians from taking Samaria. So the, uh, that, that is the, the situation. And what it meant was that uh, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, northern Israel, would be the first to bear the brunt of the Assyrian invasion, and they would be devastated by it, which, would, which is to say that they would be uh, plunged into darkness. The, the land would be devastated and also depopulated. The Assyrians would take people from there and put them into other parts of their empire. So it was a very dark day for Israel generally, but particularly for its northern regions. And although we did not read Matthew chapter 4, uh, this section of Isaiah is quoted in Matthew chapter 4, where it says when Jesus went to Capernaum and started using it as his base for his ministry, which was primarily centered in Galilee, that that represented light coming to the land of Naphtali and Zebulun. That is, uh, Jesus would be bringing spiritual light to the region that had been darkened by the, particularly by the Assyrian invasion. And so let us hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter nine, where we'll be reading verses one through seven. <clears throat> but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made 
glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep, deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy, they rejoice before you. As with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now let's look to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we humbly ask you to accept our hearty thanks for the many mercies you've poured upon us. We bless you, especially for sending your well-beloved Son to take our nature upon him and be made in the likeness of sinful flesh. We rejoice that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and we would join the multitude of the heavenly host in ascribing glory to you in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. We praise you for revealing to us the way in which mercy and truth have met together, in which righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And we account it a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. O great and glorious Redeemer, wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, we praise you, we bless you, we worship you, we glorify you, we give thanks to you for your great glory. O Lord God, Lamb of God, the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, Emmanuel, God with us. But chiefly at this time, we adore you for leaving the glory which you had with the Father before the world began. We know your grace, Lord Jesus Christ, that though you were rich, yet for our sakes you did become poor, that we through your poverty might be made rich. O Son of David, have mercy upon us. You who did come, that we might have life and might have it more abundantly, be gracious to us. May we rejoice, O Father, to take his yoke upon us and to learn of him who is meek and lowly in heart, that we may find rest for our souls. Grant that we, being made your children by your grace, may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit and follow the blessed steps of his most holy life, ever remembering that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to, be, and to purify us unto himself, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Have compassion also on those who've never heard of the coming of our blessed Lord in the flesh. In him who has arisen to rule over the Gentiles, let the Gentiles trust and find his rest to be glorious. Mercifully, with your favor, look upon the whole Christian world. May all that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Let them rejoice as Christians in Christ their Savior, and let your grace teach them to deny all ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Have mercy upon us then. 
Meet with us, speak to us through your word, and hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. In his precious name, amen.
Thank you, Paul. I didn't know you played the piano so elegantly. Well, I figure that today will make you really appreciate Pastor Wayne's sermons. I figure that's the role that I have in life. And a special shout out to Wayne and Catherine. I hope you're feeling better. And uh, you should be watching me and not John MacArthur right now. So pay attention, take notes. Okay, we're, we're going to open up God's Word, and it's not your typical expository sermon because it's a one-shot deal, and uh, I really think it will help you really appreciate Pastor Wayne. Um, it's an interesting time of year with the midterms. We have Thanksgiving we just finished, and we started off the Advent, which always just astonishes me that God would send his son. Um, you know, I know that I look like a really uh, handsome, compassionate man, you know, upright. I stand behind the pulpit. But the truth is, I'm a sinner. And for God to, before the foundation of the world, look down and say, I want you to be in my family. I'm thinking, wow, that's just incredible. Um, and I think that my wife, every time I don't do something right, she's like, wow, that's incredible that God would pick you. Um, Christmas is coming, and we have New Year's resolutions. Um, and we, Gail and I drove up to Bill's in Nashville this week to kind of feed him some of Mama's good cooking and to spend his inheritance buying groceries. Um, but on the way up, we talked, and I thought, the last four years have been really different in America. Um, and we, we made it through COVID, but then you have the pre-midterm election hype, midterms, and now we're looking at 2024. And the news cycle just seems to want to keep us off our, our, our solid track, our foundation. It wants to disrupt us, whether it's little shiny things to distract us from the real issues or just all the craziness of this world, especially with politics in America. So we're driving, and I thought, okay, we're in the car for three hours. We're taking a side route so we don't have to deal with the main traffic. And I said, Gail, it's time for us to recalibrate. We need to take a few hours and sit down and just reevaluate and, and go back to the basics and then plan ahead. I look in the mirror, and I'm not 25 anymore. And I'm thinking, how did I become my father so quickly? And I'm almost tempted to do Grecian formula just so I be, can come myself again. But I thought, life is running out rather, rather quickly. And I, I don't get worried about it because I know where I'm going. I'm looking forward to that. But I thought, how can I be a good steward with whatever life my Heavenly Father gives to me? And in this world where... Everything's coming at us online, through the news, so quickly. We can get so caught up in the now that we don't take time to say, how am I living my life? And I thought, well, let, let's take some time now to go through some scripture. And to me, it's a good time because we're kind of going back to basics. The power's going off. We're missing good music. We're missing good preaching. So let's, let's just get back to basics and I'm going to probably challenge some of you with all my mixing of metaphors today. 
and my use of scripture, but I hope that uh, you get the big picture of what I'm trying to, to communicate, and I hope that it's practical and also uplifting to God. So let's pray. Father, please open our ears, open our hearts, give me just the right words to say, and throughout all of it, would you glorify yourself. Amen. You can follow along with me. These are familiar passages, or you can flip to them. So I'm going to start in Matthew 22 with the verse 23. It's the marriage at the resurrection. And a long time ago, three or four decades, when I preached my ordination sermon, and sometimes I want to go back to my churches and apologize um, for what I did or didn't do and what I've learned since then. And, and John MacArthur and Pastor Layton have helped me out a lot. But I used this passage in my ordination sermon. I prayed about it and I thought, okay, I need to hear this and my church needs to hear it. It was a liberal Southern Baptist church where the pastor's wife might teach in the evenings. And I was telling Jerry earlier, it's like, why did we stay there for four years? And I I, I don't kick myself too much for that because my best friend ended up going from moving furniture to being a missionary for the last 30 years, and he's, I was able to get him started. Either that or he just wanted to go to China to get away from me. I, I, I still haven't figured that one out yet. But I started with this in Matthew 22. The same, that same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, that's Jesus, came to him with a question, teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. If I was the sixth or seventh brother, I would have taken a vow of celibacy and gone into the monastery, seen what's happened before. But I'm not part of this account. Finally, the woman died. Now, then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? And here's the key. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. And we often err because we don't know the scripture. When I first was saved, it seemed like I was three or four days behind in my scripture reading. And I still have an old Bible from there. It's been rebound once. It's a 30 or 40-year-old Bible. And I remember being a young Christian, doing something, and then reading about why I shouldn't do it three days later. And I thought, i got to get ahead of this game because I am playing catch-up. So I devoted a lot of time to reading the scripture I wrote out the New Testament once as part of my devotions, and I wrote it out in the King James because I wanted to learn the King James. Halfway through, I realized I was copying the New King James, so 
that shows you how smart I was. But I kept doing it, and I got a greater appreciation for Scripture. I got a really good appreciation for the scribes because of all the errors I just made. When I travel, I take the book of Romans with me. I typed it out years ago to, to familiarize myself with it, but that's the Bible I bring. This is heavy, and I'm old school. I don't bring it on my phone because I like paper. I don't want to lose this or, or take up space in my suitcase, so I have the book of Romans. And even though I've, I've read it 30 or 40 times, that typed copy, I'm still finding errors. I found one a couple days ago. I'm thinking, who were these scribes that carefully handled God's word? Now, part of it is they had a high regard for Scripture in the physical sense. They were craftsmen. But as believers, we need to have a high regard of Scripture in the spiritual sense. We need to be careful that we don't err or err because we don't know the Scripture. We need to be reading God's Word. A little gut check for you is how much time do you spend in God's Word versus Fox News? Oh, I'm probably hitting a sore spot with some of you. I'll try to back it off. God's Word... Sunday night football. Now, I know most of you don't watch football because you're solid Christians. I don't watch football because I just don't watch it. Anyway, do we know Scripture? We can also fail by knowing it but not doing it. Okay? We have to have it in our heads but also in our hands. There's a children's song that you know. Can you guess it? Do you know that, Naomi? I know your grandma knows it. The rains came down, the floods came up, but the house on the rock stood firm. It's a little children's song, but Jesus told that parable, and we need to hear it. It's in Matthew 7 and also Luke 6, but we're going to look at Matthew 7, starting in 24. And sometimes the simple fundamentals are the best. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, this is Jesus talking. It's not Andy's words. It's Jesus' words that are important. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose up, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine, and here it comes, and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as they're teachers of the law. We must hear God's word, we must heed God's word, and we must do God's word. And that leads to a solid rock life. The storms are going to come. Raise your hand if you've had a storm in life recently. Yeah, some of us want to raise both hands. Okay? And the older we get, the, we realize that life is 
stormy. We can celebrate those little interludes of calmness, but we are going to face storms the rest of our lives. I like that old hymn, My Anchor Holds. Does your anchor hold? I think if we were honest and maybe in a different setting, we would say, sometimes my anchor is held, and sometimes I let myself get adrift. And Wayne talks about that going through Hebrews. If you find yourself cast adrift or, or, or an off course, go back to God's word. It's an anchor, it's a guide, it's a light for our feet. And it's going back to the fundamentals of how do we live a rock-solid life. One of the favorite verses in the Bible is Alex in 2415. Have you heard of that, Alex in 2415? No. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua might have taken it from me in Joshua 2415, but... That's been a guiding verse for the Alexson household. We will serve the Lord. I've made some husbandly and fatherly proclamations. One is we will be technologically proficient. From an early age, Bill had a PDA, a keyboard, a laptop, a cell phone. His first cell phone was a candy box that, that you could punch the numbers in would make noise. I wasn't going to entrust a two-year-old with an iPhone. Um, but... There are things as a dad, I said, this is how we're going to live our lives. We're not going to be first adopters, but we're going to be pretty close. So my son is up there technologically. But we also made the, the determination we're going to be a biblical household. We pray, we read the Bible, we study. And praise God, my wife is a Christian school teacher who's an excellent teacher to take over that aspect. But at the bottom of it is we will serve the Lord regardless of anything else. I'm the only Christian in my family. And I made that decision. I'm going to be baptized as a believer. I'm going to serve the Lord regardless of what anybody in my old life, in my family, thinks about. Because I'm more concerned about God saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant than if mommy or daddy or my brothers like me. How about you? Have you made that determination that you will serve the Lord? I left a promising career as a forester in the North Main Woods because a missionary said, Jesus died for you, what are you doing for him? At the dinner table I said, thanks, you just destroyed my career. I need to go to Ethiopia and plant trees for Jesus Christ. That's just not a preaching story. That was true. I left forestry. I went to seminary. And because I said, I will serve the Lord, I never made it to Africa to plant trees. But God took me on a different journey. Now, there's 25 U-Hauls later. I live very minimalistically because I've loaded over 25 U-Haul trucks. And you get tired of moving junk around. But... My life has been one of, I think this is how God wants me to serve. In hindsight, I wish I had stayed a forester and become a missionary to the North Main Woods because foresters and loggers need to hear God's word. I can't wind the clock back. If, it, if I could, I would bought stock in iPhone and Apple and even 
Amazon, back when it was a bookstore through the mail. Uh, I couldn't, though, because of some of their policies. That's a side note. But for you, will you serve God? You don't have to go to Africa to plant trees. But you need to have a heart to serve the Lord. I used to think the only way you could serve the Lord was to be a pastor or a missionary. And it it hit me that when I was serving as a full-time pastor, that people looked at me as a paid holy man, that I always wore a suit. I never said anything bad when I stubbed my toe. And it got to the point where I wouldn't tell people that I was a pastor. They'd say, well, what do you do? i said, well, I work with people. Because I wanted them to know me as a person before they looked at me through a clerical collar. When I practiced forestry, people would wonder, are you a religious person? Because of how I conducted my life by always having a Bible with me, reading it. And I realized that God places us in the world to be a shining light, that we're not going to go off into the desert like some monasteries have, but we're here to rub shoulders with people. But to do that effectively, we need to know and do God's word. Mainly, Christians come to church. Easter and Christmas are exceptions, but how about the church go to unbelievers and have your life be a shining testimony? Be willing to go wherever God calls you. There are some key areas of Jesus and the New Testament author's words I want to hit on. And the first one is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. Today is the day of salvation. Without saving faith, without confessing your sins, without Jesus Christ, you don't need to be concerned about having a solid foundation. You don't need to be concerned about withstanding the storms of life because you're dead in the water already. You're not living. You need to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. That's a blunt message, but it is gospel truth, and it's the starting point for new life. Confess your sins. Ask Jesus Christ to forgive you today, right now. That's a message everyone has to hear. You might have done that. So that if you have done that, that leads to the, my most favorite verse. And some of you have heard me say this a lot. I like to repeat myself. I learned that from my pastor. And I also forget what I said because he only lets me preach once in a decade. Second um, Corinthians 5.17. Do you know that verse? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. As a new creation. If you have been saved, you can, if you can think back to that day, if you had a typical conversion of when you repented and asked Christ to forgive you, that sense of, of freshly washed cleanliness, whatever the word is, being born again, being new, of saying, I get it. I love God. I feel alive. That fades. Just like little kids grow up to be adults, the new birth fades in the excitement. But don't stop just being 
born again. A lot of Christians in a lot of churches, it's just evangelistic. Altar calls, born again, endless verses of just as I am. That's just the beginning. It's like having a little baby that never grows up. We're supposed to grow and mature in the Lord the way he's designed us. So like we started off with, build your life on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. We have a heavenly home. We're looking forward to that. And that's what salvation guarantees for us. But for years, months, days after we're saved, we still have to live on this earth. We're bound here until the Lord calls us home. Head, heart, and hands. With your head, you've got to know the word. With your heart, you guard your heart and you live with love. And with your hands, you do the word. Not everybody's gifted as a preacher. You know that because I'm here. And Wayne isn't. Not everybody's gifted as a piano player or a singer. Compassionate. Merciful. Exhorting. We all have different spiritual gifts. But every single one of us who is born again has a gift from God. We oftentimes put all our attention on the person behind this pulpit. That's just one man. It's the one and others in the congregation. We can reach people that the pastor can't. You know, it's, it's like when the pastor comes over to visit, you can get intimidated. You're like, oh, pastor's coming. But if I come, you're like, oh, it's Andy. But I can still share a word of truth. We need to serve. I think Naomi is reading a book. It's called Slave by John MacArthur. I think your daddy told me that. Yeah, you finished it? Okay, who are you going to share it with? That's a good book to pass on. Modern Bible translations take the word doulos and call it servant. Well, you can do that just like Henry skillfully did a little background of Alma, virgin or young maiden. Doulos is a servant, but the full meaning is slave. As Americans, we don't really get that. We, we rebel against the term slavery because of some bad past in America. But I, I wonder if one reason we don't really grasp slavery is because we're a, a democratic republic and we don't have a king over us or a queen. But if we're Christians, we have a sovereign God who is absolute ruler, and we are his slaves. What a better role to be, to say, I will align myself with the creator of the universe and not rebel against him, but I will serve him. When you read the book of Revelation, you'll, you'll get pictures of people casting their crowns, shouting, holy, 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 amen, 24 hours a day. And I don't know how that happens. How is eternity going to be praising him forever, serving him forever? I'll let you know in 30 or 40 years. I'll send a message back. You know, I think there's got email, good connection or something, but... We're to serve him as slaves. We have one life to give. There's no do-overs. And the older I get, I realize that's rough. There's no do-overs. I cannot go back. 
you can try to make amends. Romans 12 talks about that. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in, God's, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We'll never be perfect this side of glory. That's a, that's a given. But once we hear, well, once those words, I won't say we'll hear them, but once those words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, are said over us, we will be perfect. We will be face to face with God. If you've ever looked at a headstone, there are three parts to it besides an inscription, but there's a starting date. For me, it's 1959. And then there's an end date. This hasn't been written yet. Those are meaningless. But that little dash in the middle is the key because that's the sum of our lives, that dash. And the older we get, to use the running race metaphor, that dash really is a dash. When you're young, you think summer is forever. When you're old, you're like, how did it go by so quickly? Our life really is ephemeral. It's like flowers fading under the hot sun. We're grass that withers. Our lives are dashes. How are we going to live it? We say, I will know the scripture. I'll get it in my head. I will get it in my heart. And I will do it. Those are three important things. There's a lot of Reformed Baptist churches that have it in their head. And they become like the Pharisees that, that debate nuances and which Puritan had the best theology. The best theology doesn't matter if we don't love Jesus and if we don't serve him. And we have to have those three parts. Call it a trinity of a successful Christian life to know God's word, to love God's word, and then to do God's word. The race metaphor continues. Paul in Philippians writes this, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Now, I don't like to say that part. I'll leave that to Paul becoming like him in his death, and so how attaining to the resurrection of the dead. In verse 12, Paul gets real. Paul, the superstar of the faith. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal. This is Paul talking. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. 
But one thing I do, I forget what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's running the Christian life. That's making that little dash purposeful. Mommies, God has called you to raise godly children and to love your husbands. Husbands, God has called us to be protectors, to be the leaders, to care for our family like Christ cared for the church. Everybody, God has called us to serve one another in our various roles. And as Wayne would say, and in the uniqueness of our individual relationships. That's how we fulfill God's word. You're not unimportant. You're not just warming a pew. God has placed you in this body, in this fellowship, to serve each other, to grow in the knowledge of God, but to be an encouragement, a rebuke, a support, a comforter. Fill in all the words, but you are important simply because God saved you, equipped you, gifted you, and placed you here, even today. You're not insignificant, but you can live insignificantly if you don't serve the way God has wired you. You can look at different people. My wife, Gail, does not like being up here, even given a children's announcement. She's downstairs where her gifts are. In mommies and daddies, you know what good teacher she is. There's a reason I'm not teaching little kids. I taught VBS once because the teacher left that morning and said, I will not teach people that can't read. And I'm thinking, what don't you understand about VBS with kids? I taught fourth grade once for four hours because Mrs. Woods was sick. They never asked me back, and I was the headmaster of that Christian school. We all are gifted, and sometimes we're very ungifted. So serve God. We run this race. Hebrews talks about it also. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. My race is different than your race. Don't judge your Christian life by me. God's given me a mission. He's given me my race. I can't run your race. I can encourage you, but that's you. Don't judge yourself by other Christians. You're going to answer to God not to Pastor Wayne, not to Andy Allickson, to nobody but the creator of the universe who might say, what have you done with what I've entrusted? You can think about the parable of the talents. Don't bury your talent in the ground. Trust God, know his word, and do it, and give him the glory. If you had, could know all the times I failed as a pastor or as a teacher, you would say, well, you'd probably need to give back your diploma and your ordination certificate. But at the same time, I've had glimpses where I've helped somebody. I've had a pastor call me back that he took over for me, one of my elders, and he wrote me and said, I couldn't have done, I couldn't have been here. He's been there 22 years. 
if you hadn't come in and done what you did, I couldn't have served. I thought, thank you, Ron, for telling me that because I thought I was a failure at that church because I was dealing with all the taking out of the garbage. But I cleaned it up for him. So maybe I'm just a, a heavenly garbage collector. You know, That's okay. I'd rather be a garbage collector in the temple of the Lord than own a cattle on a thousand hills. And that's really messing up that scripture. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, not Pastor, not John MacArthur, not R.C. Sproul, not John Bunyan, not Richard Baxter, but on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We run this race. There's another saint, St. Vincenzo de Vertbe. You might know him as Vince Lombardi, winner of the first two Super Bowls. I grew up watching the Super Bowls, black and white TV, eating peanuts with my dad. If Paul can quote pagan philosophers from from Crete, cut me a little slack and let me quote Vince Lombardi. Gentlemen, while we chase perfection, and we will chase it relentlessly, knowing all the while we can never attain it, this perfection, but along the way we will catch excellence. I like that for the Christian life. Some people give up because they cannot be perfect. I'll be perfect in 30 or 40 years. I guarantee it. I hope. I hope. I'll be perfect because I'll have a glorified body. And I'm not sure when my funeral will be. I don't really care because I'm going to be too busy to go to it. But even though I'm probably a closet perfectionist. I want to do my best. I understand and I've come to grips a long time ago. I can't, I can't achieve perfection this side of the grave. But I will relentlessly chase it, knowing that I will catch excellence. And that's a difference. Perfection is my goal. Excellence is what I will do. That's why we run this Christian life. To wrap it up, head, heart, and hands, you've got to know the word. We do a good job at that. But you read the word. How's your daily Bible reading? Is it more than just the radio Bible class devotional? Immerse yourself in God's word. It's the only thing that gives life. Study it. Don't wait for Sunday school with excellent teachers. Don't wait just for the sermon with Wayne. Study it on your own. Open it up and say, God, will you show me truths from your words? Help me to understand this. Hide it in your heart. Memorize God's word. There's all kinds of systems for that. Navigators has a little great memory pack. That's what helped me. 
We give out a memory verse every week in the bulletin insert that Linda creates, and it's on the prayer sheet also. Have a clean heart. We confess our sins. Proverbs 4 says, above all else, guard your heart, for out of it are the wellsprings of life. Steve Green has a wonderful song about guarding your heart. Are you guarding your heart? You have to. But when you don't, when you find out you really do have feet of clay, that you're not perfect, Proverbs also talks about confessing our sins. 1 John talks about that. If we, are, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to purify us from all sins, to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Proverbs, another verse. Write this one down, Proverbs 28, 13. This is a good one. This is almost like a medical verse. He who conceals his sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. If you don't believe that that's a medical verse, when you go home tonight, take the dirtiest knife, the rustiest knife you have, and just cut your finger, rub some dirt in it, and then cover it with a Band-Aid and see what happens after a week. Do the same thing with your sin. Hide a sin in your heart. Don't guard your heart, but have a sin in your heart and just let it fester. Don't expose it to the light, the healing light of God's word, but cover it up. Oh, it's not a sin, it's just a boo-boo. Or I was born that way, or everybody does it. Or it's not as bad as what that other person does. And it will fester, and it will become spiritually infected. Maybe you can recall a time when God's spirit really nailed you, and you say, I am so ashamed of what I did. I can't hide it, but I'm going to open up my spiritual heart and expose it to God's word and ask forgiveness. Okay. I had that happen with Gail. No, she wasn't confessing to me, but I did something, and I was like, oh, it's not a big deal. Every time I opened God's word for the next three weeks, he brought it back to me. I said, well, I confessed it to you. He kept bringing it back. And I'm thinking, I better confess it to my wife because I sinned against her. And praise God, she's like, I forgive you. I'm like, I just had a shower, a spiritual shower. I'm clean again. Okay. That's what knowing God's word, hiding it in our hearts, and actually doing it helps us. I've said it before that we're not a perfect church. We're a, we're a really good church because we follow God's word and we live it out, but we're not perfect. Just look, you don't have to look around, but in your mind, look around. You're like, oh yeah. We're not perfect. We're not supposed to be perfect. We're family. We mess up. We sin. And messing up is different than sinning. Sometimes you can just mess up, but you can also sin. We're a family where we deal with those things biblically and lovingly, and we don't look down on each other when we sin. There have been times when we have publicly had confession of sin, and it was a healing time, a wonderful, glorious time. There's been other times when it's been private between two or three people, and it's been wonderful. 
That's how we live the Christian life. If you think you're going to be perfect, you're going to fall. Even just thinking you're perfect is pride. And I guarantee you, you will stumble. But this is a safe place. We're the family of God in a local assembly where we're here to grow. We're here to say, I can not be perfect. And we're, we gather around God's word. Do you want a strong life? As John Cabot would say, shake your head yes. And you know that from Sunday school, some of you. Yeah, we want a strong life. And Jesus Christ tells us how to do it because the rain's going to come down, the streams are going to rise, the storms are going to come. But the house built on God's word, the rock, will stand firm. I guarantee you, if you know God's word, heed God's word, and do God's word, you will have a strong life. I can't do anything about the storms. They're going to come. I can tell you that. In this world, there is trouble. There is heartache. People will sin against you in violent, evil ways. That's life. But you can have a rock-solid faith by knowing God's word. Prepare ahead of time. Okay, let's take some time to pray as Jerry comes up to lead us. But let me pray for you and pray for yourself too. Father, thank you for a patient congregation. I ask that you would filter out my silly words and burn deep into hearts and spirits the words of Jesus Christ. Would your spirit reveal to each one here where they need to confess, whether it's salvation for the first time, whether it's hidden sin that we've been cherishing, whether it's lack of faith or just being a little slack in living out the Christian life as servants. Strengthen, purify, cleanse, and encourage. You are a worthy God and we love you. We declare our allegiance to you. Amen. All right. I'd like to call an audible here on the last song for this morning, like the pastor always does. Let's all stand and turn to number 28 in our hymnals, To God Be the Glory. After that sermon, I think that's an apropos song. Number 28, the Lord hath done great things for us, and we were joyful. Psalm 126. To God be the glory, great things he hath done, so
dismissed. Father, may the Lord strengthen each and every one of us with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And may you give thanks to the Father who qualifies us in the inheritance of the saints in light forevermore. Amen and amen. We're dismissed.